0: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. And of course, check out their website at andyanddon.com. You can listen to old shows there and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning,
1: gentlemen. Good morning, 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 Scott.
0: Scott. Hey, before, right off the top, we should talk about that seminar coming up. Yes,
1: uh, Wednesday, April 10th is Mm -hmm. the date, and the title of the seminar, and I love this, is Strategies for a Confident Retirement. There you go. <laughs> we're starting off at 10 o'clock in the morning at historic Dundurn Castle. Mm. That should be easy for anybody to find. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's at 10 a.m. in the morning, and 7 p.m. in the evening is the Rousseau House in Ancaster. And um, it's a free seminar, but, and, but seating is limited. So I, we always recommend that people can either email us or call the downtown Hamilton office and reserve a spot to make sure you get a seat. Conf- strategies of a confident retirement, that includes uh, issues around uh, the decumulation strategies mm. is one big area. And this mm-hmm. is really about understanding how the, what are the options I have available to me? How do I take my money out now that I want to live? I've been mm-hmm. saving all these years. You might have a corporation, we a personal corporation or a holding company. When do you start taking money out of that? You might have RSPs. When do you start taking money out of that? TFSAs. Uh, non-registered investments. so those, Pension Plan. Canada Pension Plan, mm-hmm. Old Age Security. So those five different categories are all different sources of income that you have available to you. And the question is, when do you trigger them, and what's the most tax-efficient? Who are these seminars designed for? Are these for new people who want to investigate
2: getting a financial planner? Who are these designed for? I, w- I would suggest these are people that are probably 10 years from ret- retirement or right. already in retirement. Right, for this one specifically. For this, this p- specific one, because right. they're either – how do I ramp myself up to that retirement mm-hmm. and I, what what should I be doing and and should some big decisions to make do I start collecting CPP early mm-hmm. or not and having both spouses involved in that decision I'm um, looking at all their pension options including if they have a defined benefit plan or a defined contribution plan. And so you take all it's like a puzzle, literally like dumping out a puzzle onto the table mm. and everybody's different. But mm. really between that that 20 year window between 10 years before retirement and 10 years after retirement, so many decisions to make about your money and mistakes are costly. Like who wants to pay 53.5% tax? Yeah. Like that is that is criminal to begin with. And we didn't do we didn't save our hard money, hard-earned money, so that we can give more than half it to the government. So I take great
1: pleasure in tr- avoiding that tax bracket, yeah. and I'll do anything I can to make sure I do. So the best way, just as uh, if you want to get involved and join us, uh, com. you'd mm-hmm. be able to register or send us a message there, mm-hmm. uh, or call our Hamilton office at 905-529-7165.
0: And once again, that's for Wednesday, April 10th, and there's two different locations, 10 a.m. two different times. And
1: 7 p.m. Dun, Dun, Dundurn Castle and Russell House in Ancaster.
0: All right, uh, talking about a successful financial future.
2: Yeah, I thought we'd get back to the basics here. Mm-hmm. You know, we finally got through that RSP <laughs> yeah. time and we're kind of getting into the oh, tax yeah. season now. We've got this little wedge of time here. It says, okay, you know, for those people that just, they gotta get started and it, you know, we always say it's never too late to start. I, maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration, mm-hmm. but you, the sooner you can start, the better. But if I had to put in a kind of a priority system, what order would you be, should you be looking at doing things? Um, here's kind, here's a kind of a hit list here. And the number one thing you, everybody should be doing, and if it's not you, talk to your kids about this or talk to anybody that you know is in this position, is getting rid of high interest debt. Yeah. You know, the credit card debt is actually, there's a lot of people continuing using that to subsidize their income. If you have to buy something on a credit card or pay for something and you can't pay it off within that <laughs> month, you literally are borrowing money. It's subsidizing your income for that time. Yeah. And there's always that feeling, okay, well, it'll get better. Well, unless your pay all of a sudden changed, your expenses change. It will just lottery. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Strategy. So uh, not a. uh, You know all the all the power to you if you can win those. Winner. Yeah. (laughs) No Uh, loser. Yeah. Generally speaking, it's a loser and. And even worse is people use credit cards to go gamble. Yeah. And that's even oh, a double-edged my. sword there. I, mean, so, I was so kind of it,
1: taking it back to see you can actually just do it online on your computer. Yeah. All these yeah. games can be. So just Why how easy is it to take <laughs> yeah. money out of your pocket? You don't even yeah. have to leave the house.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and even worse than credit cards, from my perspective, is the payday loans. Mm-hmm. You know, If you actually worked out their interest rate over the course of a year, it's over it's over 200%. Mm-hmm. Because if you had to keep renewing them, so it's extremely extremely expensive and it's a downward spiral so you have to say okay what can we do right now in order to stop that cycle mm-hmm. and start off by just making some contributions if you're paying only the minimum on your credit card that is the first sign you're not doing a good job yeah, yeah. the minimum on the credit card is only getting the banks rich yeah and is only going to hurt you it's obviously the worst thing you can you'll never pay that thing off i think it's 60 years amortization It's It is a way for the banks to earn 18 to 26 percent on the interest rate scale.
1: And I think the other false sense of security are for those individuals that pay, like let's say you owe $1,500 on your credit card and you pay off 900 mm-hmm. and you're feeling pretty positive about sure. that only to find that you've put another 900 back on the card right, before yeah. the end of the month. So mm-hmm. you never technically paid it off yeah. and you end up paying interest on the whole lot.
2: Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then there's always the ones that rationalize the cost. Even if it's not a, a high interest credit card, let's say it's like a car loan. Oh yeah, I got a great rate at 6%. Well, 6% is pretty good. No question. Or even 7%, something like that but what they don't see is the opportunity cost. What if you took that same money and you're able to invest that money mm-hmm. instead of applying it to a debt because you have no choice there, that money is now going. So if you're spending $1,000 that month to go towards a car payment, what if that thousand could have gone to an investment earning 6%? Mm-hmm. So now really the overall cost is 12%. 6% the actual cost, and 6% of the, what you're not making by investing it. In. Right. Uh. So that's why the rich get richer. <coughs> and mm-hmm. it's amazing. You make these small changes in your life, it will you'll escalate your financial future and you will retire um, extremely comfortable. But again, these are the small differences from the ones that don't do well and the ones that do extremely well. So number two is build an emergency fund or a short-term reserve. And so I, I look at those people that are paying a ton in bank fees mm-hmm. and normally if you just put, left a certain minimum payment there it would avoid those bank fees and i, I know with the bank i deal with if i have over two thousand dollars there i do not pay bank fees yeah okay and there's no cost per month or anything else
1: i thought you were a senior now i thought you got that zero. You a discount <laughs> Jeez,
2: i should check into that <laughs> yeah. yeah all right this one that's actually- only a chomper's drug mart <laughs> oh okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> i've had these from my university today, is and I'm, not go. gonna, I'm I've been grandfathered. It actually, gone from a thousand to two thousand. A little bit ticked off about that, <laughs> uh-huh. but it saves. At the time, back in university, it was forty cents was the transaction fee. Hmm. Well, now that has escalated yeah. to a hundred, a $1. dollar twenty-five yeah. per transaction. So if you have ten transactions a month, which isn't that off that many, yeah, yeah. that's easy. Yeah. Like I'm thinking that's on the low scale. Most people have more than that. That's twelve fifty a month. That you're spending on these transaction fees for basically nothing and all you had to do is leave two thousand dollars there to avoid paying 1250 a month if you could say i'm going to get a guaranteed rate of return of 7.5 percent you say wow that's great sign me up Mm -hmm. that's what that rate of return is yeah you leave two thousand in and you avoid paying 1250. It's like getting twelve fifty, but yeah. everybody, it's sneak. Banks are sneaky that way. They they slowly just take away a little bit of your money.
1: Yeah.
2: And you don't really, it becomes accepted. Yeah. And I don't like that at all. I, the cost I at, of doing business. It is. The cost of, you know, it's just a fee. hmm The way I look at it, that is 150 bucks a year in yeah. transaction fees. If you And that's only 10, $10 a year, 10 per month, rather. So $150 a year is what you're paying for these costs, these transaction fees. How would you like to have three parking tickets? One, every every four months for 50 bucks. Hmm. Every four months you get another one and you say, oh, $50 parking ticket. That's the same 150 bucks. Yeah, yeah. But we look at it as, we don't see it as that detrimental to ourselves. And it's like, uh, it kind of ticks you off, but you get over it. But a parking ticket, we usually lose it. Yeah, <laughs> okay, yeah. people want to go to city hall, oh, they want to fight it, but they don't do the same for these transaction fees. So if there's a way to leave, look at your zero on your bank account out what your zero is and in this case as example the zero is 2000 mm-hmm. assume that 2000 is always there never go below it and it avoid paying all those transaction fees
0: and then you got that little safety buffer if you need
2: it too worse comes the worst you do have it absolutely yeah, yeah. and you're not scrambling now we do have a another option investors group does and it's uh it's called an all-in-one and it's it's a it's a great account so if you have some short-term debts you can consolidate all your debts, particularly if you own a house. You you use your house as collateral, and you can, so you're getting a line of credit and a bank account all in one. Mm -hmm. So in this particular situation, let's say you owe $30,000 in some debts and you put this on your line of credit. Well, instead of having a line of credit separate and a bank account separate, this is called an all in one, it's combined, Mm -hmm. okay? So therefore, when you get your paycheck, say every in the middle of the month, $2,000 bi-monthly, it goes directly against your line of credit, yeah, even though you don't have to pay your hydro bill or whatever it is until the end of the month. Mm-hmm. So it's actually being invested for that two weeks. Doesn't sound like a lot, but just two thousand dollars. Let's say your spouse is doing the same thing, that saves you a hundred bucks a year. Mm-hmm. And again, right now, I know if you leave it in a bank account, you're earning zero, yeah. So a hundred bucks a year is not the end of the world, but it's great, to, it's a great feeling too. It actually makes you feel like you're accomplishing something because at least you're paying down the debt, mm-hmm. even though it may pop back up again, but you see the decline. So it is a very efficient, I say it's actually the most efficient way yeah. to pay down
1: debt, period. It's a fantastic, <clears throat> it's a fantastic uh, concept and it's a fantastic type of product. And it baffles me why more people don't take advantage of that type of all in one mm-hmm. service. And the only thing I can think of is that we're, we're maybe a little bit hesitant in the sense of, can we control our own, uh, habits around having debt. You know, if you have a line of credit available to you, if you're weak (laughs) when it comes uh, to mm -hmm, writing mm -hmm. a, you know, you want to buy something or go on a holiday, suddenly your line of credit goes up. So if you're disciplined, if you have at least, or you're gaining discipline in terms of your, uh, this type of your accounting and your banking, an all-in-one is absolutely fantastic.
2: Mm. Yeah, it's a great way of doing things. I know other institutions have one too. They call them different names. But again, our, ours is called the all-in-one. Um, number three is maximize. I know Andy and I have talked about this f- for years. Maximize the employer match programs. Mm-hmm. Okay, first of all, get rid of the high interest debt. Have that emergency fund. And thirdly is is maximize that matching program. So if you're making 80000 a year, and you and the employer says well you can put four percent in and we will match four percent mm-hmm. well that means you get to put in thirty two hundred dollars into their group rsp and the employer will put in 3200 also mm-hmm. fantastic and a lot of them are 50 percent matching where you put in 3200 and they'll put in 1600 but it's interesting how many people say i haven't got a raise for a while you know i've been a couple years since i got any raise or i only got a two percent raise last year I say a lot of these matching programs only fifty per- percent are using them. It's mm. about a fifty percent participation rate. Yeah, and you're basically saying I don't want that two percent raise mm-hmm. or four percent raise if it's a hundred percent matching. You, they're literally wanting to give you this money and you're not accepting it. So this here is you can't. We we we'll, we can never give guarantee a person a hundred percent rate of return. Yeah, and that's what you're getting when you got the hundred percent matching. So. That would be the third one. And again, down the road, you know, you may be consolidating, you may change jobs, you may want to transfer that to your other financial planner. But in the meantime, that would be the first place to invest. We
0: are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message or book a place, uh, a spot in their seminar, uh, April 10th, Wednesday, April 10th at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165 and take a peek at the website andyanddon.com, andyanddon.com. And don't forget about their upcoming seminar Wednesday, April 10th.
1: Yeah, we're going to be meeting. It's called... Strategies for a confident retirement, Mm -hmm. 10 a.m. at Dundurn Castle and 7 p.m. at the Russo House. And one of the the topics that we want to talk about is what are the right investments for you to have in retirement? Mm -hmm. And investment options can make a big difference in terms of how much tax you pay, how you uh, how much income you're going to receive after tax as well, mm-hmm. and just having the proper diversification because there's a, a thing called sequence of returns, which is so significant when you first retire. Yeah. So lots of great ideas. If you're getting ready to retire or already retired, come and join us, you're gonna learn something.
0: That's Wednesday, April 10th, and you can call them at 905-529-7165 to book your spot. Seating is limited, so do it quick. Uh, Talking about successful uh, planning of a financial future.
2: Yes, we're still looking for tips on on the next thing. So, we we went through the top three. Next would be, okay, we've got, we're maxing out the group plan. Now, what should Mm -hmm. we do? Well, the next thing should be use the government to your advantage. Get into the tax-sheltered investments. Now, some of these things you should do in coordination with each other. So, if I'm looking at the group plan, well, and you have kids, you may want to say, well, I should get an RESP, Registered Education Savings Plan. So that would coincide with both of those. But assuming you, you got that under under wraps too, then you look at, should I get an RSP for myself? Mm-hmm. Okay, over and above the one at work? Or should I get a spousal RSP, uh, where I get the tax deduction and my spouse owns it? What combination of that, should, what's the right amount I should get in RSPs? and And therefore, also with that flip side, how much should I put in TFSAs, mm-hmm. if any? And it all comes down to tax bracket management. If you're gonna be in a higher bracket when you retire, definitely do TFSAs. Yeah. It's a no brainer. You should definitely maximize those. If you're gonna be on a lower tax bracket when you retire, well RSPs are definitely the first choice, but you could leave a big estate potentially and then pay fifty-three and a half percent. So again, then you need a plan, as Andy and I are gonna talk about in our seminar, you'll need a plan to avoid that fifty-three and a half percent down the road. So again having the right combination between RSPs, tax-free savings accounts, as well as the RESPs, registered, registered education savings plans, and getting that, that right mix, mm. and that's the key. Number five would be to pay off non-tax deductible debt. Now this really comes closer to retirement. As you're getting into, into retirement, it's nice to not have payments, mm-hmm. just period. Yeah. Now, if you're gonna pay 800 a month or 1,000 a month or whatever it is, that's after-tax money. It's nice to be working and not have payments. (laughs) True enough. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And so there may be cases where you have a very low interest rate on, say, a mortgage at 2.2% or something like that. Well, in those cases, yeah, don't worry about that so much. Maximize the tax-free savings accounts first. But again, it all comes down to the interest rate. Um, I look at a TFSA and a mortgage or a debt, a non-tax deductible debt, almost the same way. They're Mm -hmm. both using after-tax money and they're both gonna grow at whatever the rate is you've invested it in. Mm-hmm. So if you're gonna be in a guaranteed 1% tax-free savings account, and you got a mortgage that it's a 3% rate, put the money to the mortgage. Yeah. Why would you wanna invest at 1% yeah. when you could invest against your mortgage at 3%? But on the other hand, if you can invest in the TFSA and you can make five, well yeah. then go towards the TFSA. But it all comes down to your right mix, which again, Andy and I are talking about investment vehicles at that retirement. That's also on the, on the, on the jockey, if you will. Um, lastly, is uh, build up a non-registered portfolio. So you've done all the other things. You got the great advice. You paid off the high interest, save the debts. You've uh, got the emergency fund. You've matched all the programs. You've done all the tax shelter and your non-tax deductible debt is, is well on its way. Well, then you say, okay, now what do I do? And you start looking at, what should I invest in? And here's where I find people say, well, maybe I should, you know, buy a house, another house, a rental property. And it's maybe a great idea. Um, Nike running shoes are pretty good right now. I've, I was checking out the prices <laughs> of those. Uh, <laughs> a $250 pair of those shoes are almost worth 6000 if you got the right one. Wow. Yeah, this is absolutely incredible. I was shocked what? to see this. These Nike, these Air Jordans, I'm telling you, some one, other one was $110 retail. Now it's worth $4,300. Because supply and demand, they, they you don't wear them. You simply use them as a as an investment. You put them in a box. Yeah, you keep put them, them in a box. box. Yeah, brand new. They are the biggest thing. And Anyway, I'm not I'm just t- like Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, true. There's like honestly, shocked actually <laughs> wow. when, when I saw that. I'm thinking, wow. And I did hear about the big lineup of people when uh, the Jordan shoes were in Toronto. I think mm. last summer, mm-hmm. and people it's It was like winning a lottery because they could go on Kijiji and sell them for like five times as much the next day sure yeah so anyway that's tongue-in-cheek i do not suggest you use nike running shoes as your retirement but just kind of fun um but houses it's kind of interesting everybody says well houses you know they never go down in value and I'm, i'm looking at this chart here in front of me and it starts at 1953 and it's interesting from 1953 um basically to 1967 you bought a house and uh, it was worth 150 thousand when you bought it, and it was still worth 150 thousand when you sold it. Mm-hmm. It, w- it didn't move at all over all those 14 years. What years were those? 53 to 50, uh, 67 houses virtually stayed the same. 14 pretty years, flat. really? Yeah, pretty flat. Then from 67 to 74, they went up from 150 thousand to 250, and everybody says, "Oh yeah, the housing market's doing great." Well, it's kind of funny once you got to 74. From 1974 to 1985. They went from two fifty back to two hundred. Hmm. So in that next ten years you lost fifty thousand dollars on the average percent. house. <clears throat> yeah. You lost twenty percent of your value on your house over that next ten years. Then that's about when we graduated, Scott, and of course that's when we needed to buy a house. The yeah. housing market from eighty five to eighty nine went from an average of about two hundred thousand to 450,000 and interest rates were through the roof. Yeah. Yeah. In a period of four years. Well, they that's just the next
1: phase jumped. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Yes. And that just after the eighties, <laughs> yeah. in the late eight, almost nineties, and then we hit a recession. Then we hit five out, six out of the next seven years, the real estate market dropped mm-hmm. and that house in 1989, that was worth 450 and this is in the GTA mm-hmm. or in Toronto. The average house was 450 dropped to 270 from in in, in the next uh, seven years. Right. And it didn't get back up to the 450 until 2009. Hmm. So it took a whole lot of years to climb its way back out of that hole. Now, if you bought it in the, say, 97, you Mm -hmm. bought at the bottom. Yeah. And you looked at nothing but great returns. Yeah. So it's interesting. It's just that 10 out of the 64 years were negative years and there is volatility. And so I looked at the average rate of return. So if you had bought it in 1953 and just held on to it through thick and thin, you did a pretty darn good job. <laughs> you made a 7.3% rate of return. Mm-hmm. Inflation was 35 So you beat inflation in Toronto area by 3.8%. Mm-hmm. But the only problem with real estate is it generally needs some repair. It needs You still got to pay property taxes. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not a free... That's not net of costs. Mm -hmm. So you made gross 7.3%, but there is some costs affiliated with that as you have to keep it up. Mm -hmm. And if it's a rental property, there's other expenses. Um, So it's not free, Mm -hmm. there's some work involved, but if it's your own house, you still have to update the kitchen, you still have to do things. I'm not saying it's not a bad investment. I I would say it's a great lifestyle Mm -hmm. and it's okay if you like to manage properties, but at the same time, I look at the stock market in the exact same period of time, that 53 to 2018, the Canadian market went up 9% with no tenants. Mm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you do earn a <laughs> landlord. Didn't need a new roof. Right. And the US stock market went up 11% per year. And that they beat inflation by 55 and 7.5% respectively, rather than real estate that beat inflation by 3.8%. So it's not that real estate is a a bad investment. It's certainly a lot better than, say, GICs, guaranteed ones for the long run. They are good hedges against inflation, but it's just part of the overall mix. Don't get married to one kind of investment. And you're
0: already there if you own a house anyway. You want two or three. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to spreading it around
2: and diversifying. You want to have 95% of your wealth in one type of investment. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, I know Andy, Andy has some things on, on the investment side also here.
1: Well, and, and it's, we're just, it's literally on uh, the same vein when you think about how to, <clears throat> how to diversify and where to put your money. And really the purpose is to try and take the guesswork out of where to invest. Mm-hmm. That whether you're a new, new to investing, whether you're a seasoned investor, the question of, well, where should I put my money? Always seems to come up in the back yeah. of people's mind, and the the, the truth is it's 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 really is a daunting task because when you look back historically there's there is no pattern. there's no you know you can look at it and say, well, ten years ago, this is what happened, the next ten years are going to be the same because mm-hmm. every year is literally different. And one of the things that we were using as a tool to illustrate that is is a looking at where did the money, where was the best place to put your money in last year and the year before and the year before. And so these top performing categories, these top performing investment categories, and we broke it down to 11 different major categories. And so you would have, for example, Canadian small cap. So that is basically somebody who's investing in Canadian companies that their small capitalization and capitalization refers to the size of the company. Right. So these are small companies, they're on a growth pattern, they may not have a lot of earnings, but their stock could double qu- quite quickly. Right. Right? So Canadian small cap. Emerging markets is another category. So emerging markets would be again companies or uh, stocks that are uh, of companies from the emerging markets, which would include uh, China, India. Uh, South America, Mm. uh, some Asian countries as well, and potentially and probably in the future, more so Africa as well. Mm -hmm. So emerging markets. Um, Then we get into Canadian large cap companies. So the opposite of the small cap, large cap, are the companies that are the big capitalized, well-established Canadian companies. The next uh, category would be European stocks. So this would be not not just Great Britain, but also anything to do with Europe uh, as we know it. Um, another category would be foreign equities. So this would be typically everything outside of North America. Mm -hmm. Um, then we get into global equities. So this would be where you can invest in a company anywhere around the world. And then another category would be the U S uh, and that would be small cap Mm -hmm. and U S large cap. So those are two separate categories. And then we get into bonds and there would be Canadian bonds and global bonds. Okay. So bonds being that sort of fixed income component uh, tends to be the safer, more stable area, right? And so when you look at those two categories, the best performing category last year in 2018 was, okay, what would be your guess? I no <laughs> US. Canadian, uh, sorry, global bonds. Wow. Ah. Global bonds were the best performing. And the worst performing category was Canadian small caps. Mm. So those energy companies, right. the, the, our, we saw our, the uh, oil price of oil was dramatically uh, impacted last year, uh, so that all the resource sector in general was hurt. So mm-hmm. Canadian small caps were the lowest performing, and global bonds were the highest performing. So global bonds in 2018 were number one. Now there's a there's a tendency for people we like winners, yeah. right? We want to put our money with the winner. Who's the best? Who's the doing the greatest? Who you know, who's the best team, whatever. And we kind of jump on the bandwagon. Mm-hmm. And but if you went back a year earlier into 2017, global bonds were number 10 out of 11. So mm. they were at the bottom. Yeah. They were the worst performing category. And and I'd be curious to know how many people at that point bought or rotated or switched their investments into global bonds in anticipation that global bonds were going to be the best category in 2018. Mm -hmm. And I'm S I'm going to suggest that very few people did that. The number one category in 2017 was emerging markets. So if you bought emerging markets in 2017, uh, you, at the beginning of the year, you would have been very happy by the end of 2018, it was number eight out of 11. So it was near the bottom. By, so the the year. by the end of by the end of last year so it had gone down dramatically as well so i was just following the track of of global bonds over the course of the last 10 years and it went from number 1 in 2018 to the 10th like the bottom in 20, in 2017 ninth in 2016 so back to back not very great and then it popped up to number 5 back in 2015 then that da- was down to number 7 in 2014 and then all the way back down to number uh, number nine, and then number eleven in 2012 popped back up. It was number two in 2011, the, the second the second wow. perform, second highest performing. The year before in 2010, it was the bottom, absolute bottom. And the year before that, it was the bottom two years in a row. So it, it takes a lot of fortitude to be able to figure out and also you know buy those losers, the yeah. ones that are doing poorly. Mm-hmm in anticipation that they're gonna do well the next year. So what's the best approach? How do you take the guesswork out of this? Because there really is no pattern mm-hmm. overall. And what we've discovered is the best way is to diversify across all asset sure. categories. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to what Don is saying about you know even real estate. Real estate is gonna make up a large component of your assets, your net worth, because a home typically is, is the largest yeah. asset we may have. And it, it will grow over time. It's an emotional decision. We have Mm. to live somewhere. And people always forget how much they put into their home. This would be like in our world if somebody every year kept adding money to their investment mm-hmm. like we do in our home, All Right. Good whether point. it's landscaping, whether it's maintenance for mm-hmm. yard, whether it's a new roof, whether it's you know updating a kitchen, whether it's new carpet, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. there's always something being reinvested back into that home yeah. to increase its value. Mm-hmm. Well, that would be the same as taking your regular investments and doing a constant program of adding money into that. Into right. that investment over time to understand the overall return. So, the the bottom line is that a diversified portfolio is going to provide you with a much more stable and consistent return. And there's no reason why that you can't have a bit of a parallel strategy. So, if you're more of a risk taker, you're you, you would be like a number five out of five uh, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of uh, your risk profile, then. You can look at a strategy where you take a portion of your investment and then reallocate it to the lowest performing category the year before, right? Right. You don't want to buy the winner. What you mm-hmm. want to do is buy the loser. So mm-hmm. it's always buy low, sell high, sell high as yeah. the concept would be. The next concept, which I want to talk about is the GIC is about GICs and really helping people understand, you know, everybody says there's no fee to buy a GIC. There's no cost to have a GIC. I want to talk about that and shed some light on that as well.
0: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can check out the website at andyanddon.com or give them a call. They'll return your call and book your spot for their seminar coming up Wednesday, April 10th at 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can check out the website at andyanddon.com or give them a call now and leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. And you can book a spot uh, with that number at their seminar coming up Wednesday, April 10th.
2: Yes, and uh, it's two two times. One will be 10 Mm o'clock at the Dundurn Castle. And in the morning, and then the next one will be 7 PM at the Russo house. And we are pumped about getting out to see everybody. It's been over a year since Andy and I mm-hmm. have uh, gone on and done a seminar. And it's always great to see the loyal listeners. They ask great questions. It's, you know, they, they've been preempted with a lot of information already. Yeah. So now they just want to maybe find out a few things that maybe affects their specific situation. Also, what a great time to ask some questions. Hmm. You know, you can ask, you know, Clarify a few things that you may have, and particularly right now, um, estate planning is one of the most important parts of the planning process. Because we find a lot of people have done a great job in getting ready for retirement, but then how do you pass it on to the next generation without losing more than half of it to the government? And it, it can't be done. You, if you wait too long for this, we can't do much about it. So it has to be a, a kind of a gradual approach, and it has to be systematic. And how do we? do a great job so you can keep more of your hard-earned money, not only for yourself, but also for your kids. So there's going to go over a lot of topics, but that's near and dear to my heart is getting away from that high tax bracket.
0: And, of course, that's all Wednesday, April 10th, and you can call them at 905-529-7165 to book your spot. Uh, taking a closer look at GICs, this yeah, just,
1: At the end of the last section, section I was just uh, mentioning I want to look at GICs and, and the fact that for many of us, uh, many investors I have the impression that there is no fees when mm-hmm. investing in a guaranteed investment certificate. And the, But the truth is, is that the interest that you're paid on a GIC is is much less than what the bank earns when your money is invested in loans or mortgages. Mm -hmm. And so that difference between what the bank uh, retains and what they pay you is referred to as the spread. Mm -hmm. And so the spread is the opportunity cost, and it's not a direct fee, Mm -hmm. but it's the opportunity cost that you're leaving on the table by choosing this investment. And that's it's that spread that that's the money earned by the banks that helps them cover their costs and make a profit and so again even though there's no fee to purchase a GIC the bank still makes money using your money yeah. and so let's just run through a, a quick example of what that might look like so let's say you have $100,000 and you decide to buy a GIC and you used uh, and that and that money is used by the bank to fund a loan mhm And in this case, uh, to another customer. So Mm -hmm. not connected to you. So we'll use a hundred thousand dollar GIC and the bank can earn 4.45% by loaning that money out. And they agree to pay you 1.75% per year for the next three years. And so when you look at the numbers and who gets what over the course of the three years, here's how it looks. So on your hundred thousand dollars, you get $1,750 and the bank collects $4,450. Mm. So paying you that 1750 leaves them $2,700 of profit that yeah. they've made on your money. Hmm. So that's year 1. Year 2, they make another $4,450, pay you 1750, they keep $2,700. Year 3, same thing, 4,450 they keep, they give you 1750 they keep $2,700. So when we add it up over the course of the year, what we look at is that you've made $5,250 on your $100,000 investment. The bank kept $8,100. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the total over the course of the year, uh, sorry, three years was about $13,000 that was made on that money of which as i said the bank kept 8100 dollars and you got 5250. So at the end of the 3 years you got 39% the the bank passed on 39% of the profit they right. made on that money and they kept 61% of what was made on that money.
0: That's fair. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so there's no cost. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. There's there's no fee involved in owning that GIC and i know what you're saying, yeah, but it was guaranteed. Well, it was guaranteed not to make as much money, mm-hmm. uh, and and so we're not even talking about tax, right? So I haven't even included mm. what you would have to pay then out of that fifty-two fifty that you kept. How much tax you would have to pay? Um, so where does a GIC fit in? It's extremely profitable for financial institutions for banks because they know that they can uh, create that spread, which is fantastic for their profit you know? margins. And, uh, they, and and that spread is again, what funds their operating costs, what goes into their profits. And the only argument you might have is if you're a shareholder of a bank, that somehow you're getting some of that back yeah. in the form of a dividend. <laughs> but they're certainly not paying it to you on the GIC. So these are just straight up GICs. You know exactly what you're going to get. And then there's a whole nother segment of GICs, which are, like we call index-linked GICs. And again, these are, if you looked at how much you get to keep out of what the bank gets to keep out of the, the growth on those investments, just for the simplicity of having a stable or a guaranteed sort of minimum return, right. it's extremely cost costly to own a GIC. <clears throat> so um, I think that that's probably my, my number one thing when I think about GICs is um, that there is a cost. And, and the final piece of that is actually inflation. Because mm. if inflation today is around 2 to 2.5%, two you, uh, you need about 3 or three and a half four percent 4% to actually break even right. on your GIC investment. So you're far better to, instead of giving the bank your money for a GIC, you're far better off to loan somebody the money mm. uh, and charge them 4.45%. Four, four like five the bank percent. does. Like the bank does. Yeah. do exactly what they do. Yeah. And the way you do that is by owning owning a mortgage investment. Hmm. So a mortgage fund that can be purchased through any financial institution takes that mo- takes your money and loans it out to people in the form of first mortgages and you get to get the high interest rate hmm. instead of the bank.
0: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now at 905-529-7165 and book a spot for their upcoming seminars on Wednesday, April 10th. And also check out the website at andyanddon.com. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165 and take a peek at the website andyanddon.com. That's
1: andyanddon.com. We're talking about correlation. Correlation. And another sort of basic concept in terms of building your investment portfolio is under Understanding the correlation between your different investments. Mm-hmm. So, what does the word correlation mean? Correlation means how similar something is, mm-hmm. or, do they cor- or how dissimilar something might be. And one of the one of the struggles when I when we review somebody's statements, they'll come in as a new client and they'll say, "Well, here's what I have over at XYZ Company, uh, and what do you think?" So. More often than not, when we pull together, and we look at all the different investments that people have, and then we categorize them into different investment categories. And generally, again, talking about categories, you would have cash, um, global bonds, Canadian bonds, high yield bonds, foreign equity, US small cap, US large cap growth, US large cap value, Canadian large cap value, Canadian large cap growth, Canadian small cap, and emerging markets. Boom.
2: Oh, that was easy to say. I know. So... <laughs>
1: So your investments are going to fall into one of those categories. And then we attach a correlation analysis to that. And the, what the correlation analysis will tell us is how similar your investments are to each other. Right. And why that's important is that it tells us how they're going to fluctuate. And the more they are correlated, uh, the more they're going to fluctuate the same right. at the same time. So correlation is... If you have a correlation of 1, that means they're identical. Mm-hmm. So, they're exactly the same. They're going to they're going to move up and down in the exact same pattern as each other. If you have a correlation of 0, it's basically random. So, one might be going one way, one might be going the other way. But if you have a correlation of -1, they're completely opposite. Right. They're perfectly opposite. One when one is going up, another one would be going down. And then if you assigned a color to that and you said Uh, Blue would be uh, whether opposite. So that's great, right? They're, They're going in different directions at different times. And red is when they're identical, they're going in the same direction together. We'll plug in someone's portfolio into this analysis and I can't tell you how often it's like a sea of red. Right. Yeah. All investments similar to each other, mm. moving in the same direction through the cycles of the market.
2: Right. And we saw that a lot last year with the US growth funds. So clients would come with their portfolio and whoever their advisor was, would try to follow what the trend was at that time. So they would move money to the growth area, which is basically generally tech oriented stocks, mm-hmm. like Google would be a growth play. And, and a lot of the Amazon, um, um, the Fang stocks in general, mm-hmm. Facebook, and it was amazing when even a global fund, they say, well, it's a, it's a global fund. No, it ended up being that global fund was doing so well because it was in the US growth sector right. for the majority of their investments. So you have to sometimes just not look at the name. You have to dig a little deeper. And by doing this co- uh, correlation analysis, you actually find out what that fund is all about and what that manager is really doing. Because right. there's no point in having five different funds all doing the same thing yeah you don't want the duplication no, exactly. you not just
1: get one fund because mm-hmm. that's identical the amount of risk that you have in terms of how much volatility how much they will fluctuate is is enormous if it's a sea of red right, they're all it. the same they're all going mm-hmm. up and down and that plays more on us emotionally because there's more volatility to our portfolio we're apt to make bet worse decisions because yeah. we're influenced by our emotions and sleep at night factor so our goal is to and I'll, I'll say to a client well here's your current Here's your current picture. And they'll see a sea of these red boxes. And then I'll say, here's the alternate portfolio that we'd like to recommend. And the goal is to, can, how many of those red boxes can we get rid of, mm-hmm. right? We want to see a sea of blue. Yeah. But people are always shocked. I'm always, it's always fascinating to me how shocked people are when they see how much red they have, how mm-hmm. much their investments are the same. Yeah, it They've is been incredible. told they're different, but they're actually very similar to each other. Yes, and, and at the end of the day, even if
2: we get, end up with the same return, let's say the track record ended mm-hmm. up being the identical return. So let's say it's 7% was the 10 year track record. Well, the ri- the risk would be far less. Mm-hmm. So you'll end up with far less volatility. Right. So you're not gonna have these much lows or highs, but isn't that really what investing is all about? Mm-hmm. Is trying to get a, a reasonable rate of return, trying to get the, less, the least amount of risk as you can get at the same time. Because what happens if there's too much volatility, people don't stick to the program. Yeah. They kind of go right. offside. So right. I don't want this. This is minus 20%. Well, if you invested in, in a non-correlating asset, you may have only dropped, say, 10%, and you can withstand that in your risk tolerance. Mm-hmm. So it's extremely important to marry risk with, with the return and not just worry about what's
1: kind of sexy right now because... Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, that will lead you down the wrong path. And this adds a lot to predictability of your plan, too, because now we're getting a more consistent return, yeah. and it's easier to see, you know, when we to report card time, how are we doing? Are we on track? it's going to be a lot more positive uh, than a higher volatility portfolio. So just to give you an idea of what would be something that is highly, very strongly negative uh, correlation. So this is, this is a good thing. So it means they move in opposite directions at the same time. So if you have Canadian large cap value stocks, so these are the big blue chip Canadian companies, and you compared those to global bonds. Well, they have a correlation of minus seven, minus 074 minus 0.74. Minus one's perfect, Mm -hmm. minus 0.74. So they are almost always going in opposite directions, right? right? uh, Another big one would be emerging markets, Uh, minus 0.77 against uh, global bonds. Uh, And here's another one that... would be uh, very, very good is U.S. large cap value investments versus high yield bonds. They have a correlation of minus 0.06, which is considered uh, low to moderate, but it's still going to give you a really good diversification. Uh, now, the opposite of that is if you, if you combine things that are mostly you like a lot of us companies are very similar so if you just have a lot of different us investments as don was saying they have a high correlation of like 0. 0.9 mm-hmm. so almost one which means they're going in the exact same direction all the time
0: all right let's plug the seminar one more time before we're out of here oh april, sure
1: yeah. april 10th
2: <clears throat> uh 10 o'clock at Dundurn castle and 7 p.m that's 10 o'clock in the morning and 7 p.m at the Rusa house And we are going to talk about correlation.
0: (laughs) There you go. And uh, you'll need this number, 905-529-7165. You can call that number, leave a message. They will return your call and also book your space there. Check out the website too at andyanddon.com. We've been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from IG Private Wealth Management. Have yourself a great week, guys. Guys, Thanks thanks for coming in. Thanks, Scott.
1: Take care.